Welcome to Genuine Humans, exploring the stories behind the great marketing leaders of our time and hearing how their journeys have influenced the brands they've built. Brought to you by The Social Element, here are our hosts, Tamara Littleton, CEO and founder, and Wendy Christie, Chief People Officer. Welcome to a very special edition of the Genuine Humans podcast in celebration of 20 years of The Social Element. Before I introduce our special guest, I'd like to introduce our guest co-host, Emma Harris. You might remember her from a previous Genuine Humans podcast. Emma is the Chief Creative Officer at The Social Element and also the Chief of Glow London. Hi, Emma. Hello. How is it going? Oh, I'm very excited to be here. I feel like I have big shoes to fill sitting in the chair with you, Wendy. (laughs) Well, I'm sure you're going to do a fantastic job. And now I'd like to introduce our very special guest, the Social Elements CEO and founder, Tamara Littleton. Hi, Tamara. The big reveal. (laughs) How are you, Tamara? Does this feel a bit strange? It feels really weird. It feels a bit weird. I'm actually quite nervous. I'm I'm kind of realizing how our guests feel. I'm suddenly like, uh, how's how's this gonna go? What are you gonna ask me? But I'm really looking forward to this and so proud that we've got to 20 years as well. So this feels like a great way to uh, to celebrate that milestone. Yeah. Happy birthday to all of us. Well look we'll go gently. So don't worry. I'm gonna kick off just by asking, you know, all about the journey as we tend to at the beginning of our podcast. Just so tell us a bit, Tamara Obviously, you are our chief exec and founder, but the business now, the shape it's in, 250 people globally, wasn't always the case. So tell us about your career journey, sort of up to where we are, leading up to what made you decide to set up, obviously, what was then e-moderation. Give us a bit of, you know, what was your background, where have we come from? (laughs) Yeah, of course. So when I left university uh, and I went to, to Manchester, I studied psychology, I had I had grand plans of being a psychologist. I wanted to be a criminal psychologist. Oh, my God. The truth was I didn't get a good enough grade. (laughs) (laughs) And I think I'd enjoyed the university a little bit too much. Um, And so I fell into a job. Uh, I played a lot of hockey at university, and I can kind of come back to my love of team sports a bit later. But uh, I essentially I played hockey when I got back to London, And I got a job as a publishing assistant. And this was my first proper grown up job. And I absolutely loved it because it was it was kind of a a time where things were starting to move towards digital. And and I just got really engrossed in it. And the next publishing job that I had, if I date this, it is going to make a lot more sense. But it was the mid 90s. It was the early days of the Web. And I ended up running a team where our whole focus was on putting online journals up, up onto the web with a small startup company called Adobe and mm-hmm. the University of Nottingham. And basically, I was just a massive geek. I was coding and loading these files. And I was just kind of, it was quite a techie sort of time. And I was very much self-taught. Um, and the guy who taught me everything got headhunted. So suddenly I was running the whole team and it threw me into the sort of the world of digital and then I I left to uh, to become a consultant, an intranet consultant, when that was a thing. And I managed to fall off a ladder 
break my arm, got made redundant after only being there three months, which I'm still not sure is perfectly legal. But <laughs> I ended up getting this amazing job at the BBC. And I think that was the sort of the real job that turned around everything because I was running the online uh, webmaster team in such a pioneering time. So we're talking end of the 90s, beginning of 2000s. And everything was going on, but community was starting to become bigger. So online, virtual worlds, forums, all that kind of stuff. And I just had this vision that brands would need to go into the online community space and that they would need help and they would need support in building those communities. And so I had the idea for e-moderation. It was actually, I had the idea in 2000. I had the courage to actually set it up in 2002 after I was working at this company called Cello, which is a uh, Dutch portal company, like a sort of a bit like AOL type thing. And they had great redundancy packages and offering voluntary redundancy. I thought, I have to do it. This is inside me. I was kind of, I got the startup bug and I just knew it was a great idea. Even though, to be fair, lots of people were telling me it was a rubbish idea. And I just went for it. I started the company and it took a few years to really get off the ground. And if I just date it again, this was before Twitter, before Facebook, before YouTube. So I essentially started a social media agency before social media. Brilliant. So what year, what year was that? 2002? 2002, yeah. Yeah, the year Zuckerberg started college. Well, exactly. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can I ask, did you get a tutu? I did get a tutu. So you got a Desmond. I got a Desmond as well, I I'm afraid. <laughs> Look at us now. <laughs> but yeah, it was, and it was amazing to like starting the company at that time and, you know, to build it from nothing to, you know, as you mentioned, there were over 250 people working all around the world. The early clients were, I mean, I was pretty excited because there were people like GE. We worked with Y&R agency who sort of flew me over to New York to work on a, a Chevron project. And then, you know, a couple of years later, we won Disney. We we started off with these incredible American clients. And I think what was going on is that user-generated content became much more of a thing. Everything was focused about social media and marketing. And, and it's kind of ridiculous to think about it, but there was a time where there was only three companies in the world doing what we did. And literally the phone would ring and it would be, you know, Nintendo ringing up. Can we work with you? ITV, can we work with you? And, you know, I didn't even know what outbound sales was for years because it was just all inbound. And, you know, we're still working with incredible brands. We work with Peloton, Visa, Nissan, Oreo, Dr. Pepper. And it just makes me incredibly proud. But it's been one hell of a journey. I have to ask you, and uh, I know we're coming to, to other questions, Wendy, but I do have to ask, I know this story and I think it's a great one to share. That meeting that you had with GE when Y&R flew you over. Yeah, that was, yeah, Y&R flew, flew me over to work on a, a Chevron project. And um, they sort of said, can you come and meet them? And I'd pretty much won the work anyway, but it was to go and meet the clients start working on this this campaign and we were going to be managing a community that went with this campaign and the thing was I didn't have any money <laughs> it was so early you know I'd burnt through uh, a lot of the the money I had I was privileged enough to have investment from my parents of ten thousand pounds and I had some redundancy money 
that doesn't last very long when you started up an agency. And I had to be so careful. So I went to the meeting. It was absolutely brilliant. You know, I had sort of, you know, smashed the meeting, but they were asking me how I was going to get back to the hotel. And I didn't have enough money for a taxi. And basically, I just sort of said, oh, I'm going to walk. I love New York. I love walking in New York. But it was those decisions. I had to make a decision. Do I want a coffee from Starbucks in New York, which is such a lovely thing to do? Or do I want to get a taxi? So, yeah, I walked. And I think, you know, at the beginning, you just had to be a little bit brave. But, yeah, it was exciting to be flown out there, but kind of terrifying to have no money in New York. Wow, that's a good story. Yeah, fantastic. And so you know now that I'll probably start talking about your childhood. And yeah. I'm sure that you've been giving it some thoughts after our previous podcasts. So I'd love to know what you were like as a kid and how that has influenced how you are as an adult and whether that entrepreneurial spirit started really young. Well, I think, you know, the fact that I, I got my my tutu, that there was... <laughs> There was something that my teachers used to say that always stuck with me is that Tamara's very bright, but doesn't always apply herself, which I think was that I got a bit distracted. And I would say that I was endlessly curious, possibly a bit annoying, because I think I thought of myself as a bit of a class clown. You know, I just liked to sort of chat a lot. I like to learn about the world. Um, I think I was a bit weird. I felt this sort of sense of, you know, being a bit more of an outsider. And I think I had a bit of a weird streak. I also loved animals. So there's a story that my mum loves to tell people about when I was, I think I was six and at school and I convinced everyone in the class, all the children in the class to adopt a snail and take it back in their pockets which they all did. So maybe there was that sort of like visionary entrepreneurial thing. <laughs> I have no idea. But I also used to spend hours in the garden. I'm the youngest of four. And I think when you're the youngest of four, you have to know how to entertain yourself. So I think this mixture of sort of quite a creative side, a curiosity, and, and I used to spend hours in the garden sort of playing with, with animals and insects and things. And I, I made a a frog hotel. Of course you did. Yeah. <laughs> and it even had disabled access because there were a lot of frogs that lost their legs with the hover mower as well. So, you know, I was kind of very inclusive from an early age. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I just liked creating things, making things, and I could happily spend a lot of time by myself. I've, I've sort of spoken on the podcast before about how I'm an ambivert. So I have... Mm an extrovert side, but I'm also uh, very introverted at times. So quite happy to spend time by myself. And am I right in thinking that you were quite into sports? Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of, I mean, there, there is definitely a theme here. I discovered that I was quite a good goalkeeper. So I went to a convent. That's it's probably worth just sharing that. I was raised by nuns and we played lacrosse. It was a bit of a posh school. And I discovered that I was actually really good in goal because if I, I figured out that if I put on all of the equipment and said that I would be in goal, you didn't have to run around the whole pitch. Um, <laughs> so I was quite, I was clever. Genius. <laughs> but then it turned out I was actually really good at it. So I ended up playing uh, lacrosse for county. When I went on to sixth form, I started playing hockey again, goalkeeper. And at university, I ended up getting my colours representing the university and even playing for England University. So I got to a, a pretty high level. 
and then later on in life, I sort of dumped all of that and started playing football. And my team sport now is choir, I always say. So I I love team sports and I think it's had a real impact on my leadership style and, and particularly being, I think, a goalkeeper where you can just see what's going on in front of you, make strategic decisions. But uh, yeah, now, now for me, it's it's singing. But uh, yeah, we, we might come on to that later. I hope so. If you were living your childhood dream, what would you be doing now? Before, I'm sure you wanted to be something before you wanted to be a criminal psychologist. Well, when I was seven, again, another story that my, my parents used to like telling is that I, I, when everyone was asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? I, I said that I actually wanted to retire and have cats. So um, yeah, I was a crazy cat lady from my childhood. I genuinely wanted to be a vet and I also wanted to be an architect, but there's a key link here. Both of those take about nine years to study for and I was just like nope I'm not interested <laughs> and I think the truth is I just didn't actually do that well in academia I think I was driven by work and my my fondest memories are things like I was lucky enough to work at a, a bookshop when I was sort of 16 and 17 and 18 and in the sort of summer holidays I loved working at that bookshop and uh, I, I was given so much sort of trust by the owner this amazing woman called Daphne Crisp and she just let me lock up as well at the age of, you know, 17. And I was serving customers. I was learning how to engage with, with customers. I think it was so good. I did a stint at McDonald's where they train you really hard. And it kind of gave me this love of working hard. And and so I think, you know, it's just, um, yeah, I, I just think I wasn't really that strong in academia, but my my drive came from working. And have there been other Daphne's over the years, other people who've given you that support, influenced you in your career? Well, I think a shout out to, you know, Zazie Barrel was my hockey captain who gave me a job, my very first job that paid me, I think it was nine and a half thousand a year or something like that. Um, But she took a chance and, and, uh, you know, perhaps recognised that I had a good uh, attitude with absolutely no experience. Further down the line, there was a great guy called Ian Jindal, who was my boss at Chapman and Hall. And he was such a good boss that when I moved to the BBC, I engineered it so that he interviewed and then got the job as my boss at the BBC. So I kind of recruited my own boss. He was fantastic because he just taught me so much about uh, respecting other people's time, being a real sort of collaborative team member. But he was a visionary and just so excited about work and I think I've always had that concept that you know work to me is fun I don't understand when people say that that they just you know work for money or whatever to me work is absolutely everything and I I would happily go on holiday and talk about work all the time yeah so I think he he gave me that uh, that drive and then you know along the way 20 years in I've met so many incredible people that have influenced me I mean obviously the two of you and along with Trina and Ashley and also Dan who's uh, one of our sort of advisors the whole team that have sort of been with us and then some incredible clients and you know you learn so much from from clients but a bit of a shout out to Cabal Uh, uh, you know it's run by Gemma Greaves and she's created a a group of really special people who I feel that I can go to and get support from and talk to uh, you know people in the industry, just genuine humans. And as as the two of you know, and of course this is what the podcast is named after, is we're all obsessed about being genuine. 
So just taking you a little bit further back to what we were talking about before, um, when you talked about coming out of cello and just having this fire in your belly of knowing that sort of communities is the future. When you set up what was then E-Moderation, did you have a sort of vision? It's, it's What's been amazing to all of us is, well, I've been in the business five years. Wendy, you've been in the business for 10? 14, believe 14, it or not. 14, Wendy. <laughs> the absolute clarity with which that business is has been developed with your values at the heart of it of you know highly inclusive you know your your passion for kindness from the start were you like right I'm going to build a business and this is what it's going to be like or is it just evolved like that because you're like that what was that vision about and do you feel like you've delivered on it there were a couple of visions I knew that I wanted to start a, a company that was global so you know I think it was I had this sense of do you know what? Just try it. What's the worst that could happen? And that's a very sort of freeing attitude of just like, give it a go. But I knew that it was going to be a global business. I, I felt that there was such a need for this community's brands. It, it just felt, you know, a, a big idea. But I also wanted to create an agency that uh, I would want to work at. So I wanted it to be, I wanted it to be fun. I wanted it to be inclusive. And and perhaps going back to, to that sort of childhood, I, I touched on feeling a bit like an outsider, um, not always fitting in, being uh, bullied a little bit at, at this uh, convent. You know, convent girls can be incredibly mean. And I didn't want people to go through that pain. So, you know, I've set up an inclusive company that I, I just, I'm slightly obsessed with people having a, a good time. And, you know, it's one of my my, my things that I, I want it to be kind, I want it to be a great place. So And part of it is because that's what I want, but a lot of it is driven by I don't want people to not feel included, if that makes sense. Mm. I love that you've taken your own experience and, and chosen it to make a difference. What, in terms of the industry we're in, though, and I mean, I suppose, the broader marketing industry, agencies don't always have that reputation in terms of sort of culture. What do you think needs to change in the industry to help make more businesses the way that the social element is? Well, I think it, it is about that vulnerability from, from the sort of the, the leadership point of view. I think I don't know how to be different to how I am. Mm. And it didn't occur to me to be a different version of myself. And, you know, I know that I'm sort of obviously quite vocal about being an, an out gay CEO as well. Uh, you know, why would I not be myself? And I suppose perhaps I didn't realise that there was this sort of big ego that sometimes people are, that they run things differently. And I just, I kind of look at it and think, huh, okay, why would you do that? But uh, so perhaps, perhaps it is people being a bit more vulnerable. I would say that over the last few years, I have noticed that change. There's so There are so many more people talking about sort of perhaps servant leadership, uh, being, you know, absolutely committed to your to your team and your staff and being uh, more honest and, and vulnerable. And, you know, during the pandemic, people have had to open up more and there is a focus on uh, humility, vulnerability. So I think those are great traits for a leader that helps then create this uh, a sort of company where people feel that they they feel safe to be themselves. Personally, I think anyone who doesn't have that style of leadership perhaps won't be in business for very much longer because I think the world has changed. Mm. Thank the Lord that it has. Yeah. And and 
during the last couple of years, obviously, we've been in a, this sort of bonkers pandemic. Now we're, we're at war, you know, the world, uh, you know, losing its head. How have you managed to maintain that sort of leadership style? What do you think has changed for you in the last couple of years? I think it's been going on. It was interesting because I think I was getting to the stage where that I had been perhaps not as involved into the the day-to-day running of the business and I was much more sort of out and about doing sort of speaking gigs, meeting people, lots of lunches and chatting, which is what I love to do as well. I think when lockdown started, I felt this um, umbilical cord, I suppose, that I had to be back right in the thick of it, uh, leading uh, the company very, very closely. But it wasn't, I didn't feel like I was on my own. I've always felt so supported by my incredible exec team, of course, uh, including the two of you. And and Wendy, I think a big shout out to, to your role in this as our chief of people and the the, the guardian of our values and, and the and culture. It felt so natural that the, the the sort of the two of us we just sort of got our heads together and said well, how are we going to do comms because obviously you you head up sort of internal comms but there was a group effort of we just knew what to do which was be there for our team be there for our clients we were doing daily briefings I, I still can't quite believe I think we were doing it for like three months or something it was quite a while yeah yeah and it became you know it just became so important to stay that connected to our team. And I think our relationships with our clients changed a lot as, you know, we were there, your phrase is always shoulder to shoulder. I thought, Emma, that I think that's, that's definitely what we did. So I think all of those traits came out. I felt like this need to, to be very involved and leading from the front. And maybe there is something about crisis management. I mean, we do always joke that I, I, I love a good crisis it's something that drives me. There's something weird that happens that my everything slows down for me, but in a good way. It's almost like I can just get a sense of what's important. My brain just like just goes into the zone. And you know, I I started as as you know, I co-founded Polpeo with with Kate Hartley eight years ago, which is our crisis simulation platform where we help brands prepare for going through a crisis. So. Perhaps having spent the last eight years doing crisis simulations, learning from so many incredible brands about how they approach things, I didn't realize at the time, but I've been like going through a master's degree in crisis over the last eight years that perhaps put me in a good position to to, to lead from the front. You, you are very good in a crisis, I have to say. It's almost like you come more alive than ever. It's quite amazing to watch. Um, I think it would be remiss of us just to not pick up on the LGBTQ um, mm. matter and the fact that in the last couple of years, certainly, you know, one's observation is that there have been huge steps forward in terms of general diversity and inclusion, Black Lives Matter. What's your view on things of, in terms of the industry and and whether those things are really making a difference and, and what the future looks like? Yeah, I think I sort of went there was a time where I was just grateful that there was recognition and that perhaps, you know, the LGBTQ community wasn't so invisible. And, you know, every time there was an ad that had a, a sort of a, a trans character or or a gay guy or a lesbian in it, or, you know, it was so much excitement. Oh, wow, there's an ad with, 
you know, I can see myself reflected back. And I think it's got to a stage where that's just not enough. And and I'm I'm so pleased that the industry has has changed a lot. So, I mean, representation really matters. And so it's important for us all to see ourselves reflected back in marketing and, and advertising. But I think uh, maybe over the last couple of years, there's perhaps been a, a bigger driver to do the right thing. I think perhaps there have been certain brands that have been caught out, you know, talking about how uh, wonderfully diverse they are. And then when you start sort of picking it a little bit at the uh, edges, you realize perhaps that's not the case. Or, you know, it's no longer that you can talk about, you know, the gender pay gap and, and then brands being all sort of celebrating women and then realizing that they they have a big problem internally. So I would say that because of social media, everyone has more of a voice and brands will get called out much faster. And this is having a positive impact because it means that, uh, you know, brands are being better, doing better. I think there's more about education. And I come from the position of that I will never be good enough when it comes to diversity, inclusion and being the best that we can be. We all have to educate ourselves constantly and be better. And thank you to you, because I do feel like, you know, as an out CEO, you personally and the work that you do and the mentoring that you do with other, particularly other young women, you know, you really are one of the people who have who can look at that and think, well, I, I made a difference. I was at the forefront of that. And it's funny, actually, how much guilt I have over that in terms of never thinking that that's really enough. I see so many people who are active in this space and Jerry Dakin, who is kind of such a, a, a force to be reckoned with and runs um, along with other people outvertising. I feel like these people are really making a difference. And sometimes I think, you know, all I do is just I talk about it and I try and sort of, uh, you know, raise awareness. But at the same time, that's important too. So I, I'm trying to not give myself a hard time, but it's incredible how much I sort of uh, take on of like, I, I suppose I just, I just want to change the world because something that really upsets me is to know that people joining our industry, there is this sort of stat that I think it's uh, 41% of people go back in the closet when they start their first big job. And that just makes me incredibly sad. So I suppose anything that I can do to sort of move the needle, I will continue to do, but I sort of wish I could do more. That's why we love you. <laughs> well, let's get a bit more personal, shall we, shall Wendy? We? Yes, let's do it. So Tamara, what's your idea of a perfect weekend? And do you have any guilty pleasures we should know about? I think some of them have come out in the podcast, but perfect weekend for me is definitely spending time with my lovely partner, Emma, and her boys. I also love to eat, basically. So perhaps discovering a brand new restaurant or something would be in, in part of that weekend. Maybe a bit of karaoke with uh, with with friends. And I think binge watching Netflix. I mean, I'm really quite that shallow. I love a bit of a binge watch. So it has to be, it's going back to that ambivert thing. I love a bit of sociable, uh, you know, a sociable weekend. I also need that time to just kind of top up my energy as well. And the guilty pleasures, yeah, I'd, I'm I'm proud of them, quite frankly. I love a bit of reality TV. I love Made in Chelsea, Selling Sunset, all the stuff that you just sort of like know is really quite rubbish. But, oh, my God, I love it. <laughs> yeah, no, no need to be guilty for that. It's quiz shows with me. I'm not so much the reality, but it's the quiz shows. Okay, and what advice would you give to your teenage self? 
I think going back to that sort of slightly feeling a bit weird and a bit different, I, I think perhaps I would just say, just be you. Don't try and sort of just worry too much about not fitting in. Just just be you and other people will like you. And that's very true. Yes, it is. And if only we would listen to that when we're teenagers. I know. Just going back to you today, and it might be linked to when you were younger, what is your personal superpower? Well, I think maybe maybe my psychology degree wasn't such a waste of time after all because um, I'm really good at body language. And even, you know, you sort of have to learn the art of that on, on you know, Zoom and video calls and everything. But uh, I feel like I always thought that everyone could do this, but I there, there's a high sense of empathy and, and an awareness of people's body language that I, I feel I can pick up on what's going on for people. Uh, so, yeah, I think empathy and reading people is my superpower yeah sometimes I think it's your detriment because you worry so much about what other people think (laughs) and what other people feeling that's your that's certainly something I know you and I both suffer from yeah um although you have much more guilt than me (laughs) (laughs) it was the nuns although I've got the Jewish guilt you've got the Catholic nuns um and just going back to your your perfect weekend you and I both share a love of good food and drink you know, if you were going to write a book about restaurants in London, I think it would be a bestseller. What are your sort of favourites? That's a really good one. I mean, I've recently discovered Brat in Shoreditch, uh, thanks to uh, Diane Young at the Drum took us there. And that was delicious. I think it's, there are some that I've been to in New York that are literally just incredible. I've also been lucky enough to go to the Fat Duck. I took my parents there to say thank you for them investing in me all of those years ago and they absolutely loved it and I think they loved all of the sort of the theatre of it all so yeah I I think um I just like new restaurants I love sharing my favorite other one is Fallow at the moment um which Emma we nearly got to go to and then I went and got Covid didn't I so you owe me that I owe you Fallow (laughs) but I I love a bit of cooking I used to cook my my Mother was very good at um, instilling a sort of interest in food and and cooking. I was sort of doing it from a very young age, and it's going to sound incredibly pretentious, but I'm going to share anyway. But I was allowed to just have free reign in the kitchen. My my mother actually was a French teacher, so my dad would be out at, at work, but she was running her own business as a French teacher. So a lot of the time we were allowed to just cook for ourselves, which was amazing. But I would do things like veal, with a sort of creamy sauce and I would go and get cognac from the alcohol cupboard and I would be cooking with, uh, yeah, vermouth, cognac. I did flambe bananas in the microwave, which didn't work very well. Um, <laughs> what <laughs> age is this? You're doing all this booze. About eight. Oh, my <laughs> God. Well, that explains a lot. I love how you frame it as we were lucky. Some people would see that as actually, you know, an eight-year-old having to kick this. I look at my nine-year-old and think, God, she wouldn't. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know if I'd want her to be left to to cook for herself. But yeah. for framing it as, we were so lucky. <laughs> there is tomorrow the optimist. Well, I always do call myself chief eternal optimist. So, yeah. Yeah, chief Gen X eternal optimist. <laughs> <laughs> left to our own devices. So if, um, if Emma and I had the superpower of being able to give you an extra hour a day, what would you do with it? I would like to say that I would be on my Peloton doing an hours of exercise. 
Sorry to snigger. I love, I do, I really love my Peloton. I think the reality is I would probably do some singing because I think that is a way that I can completely uh, relax, either singing along with my choir, which is um, Natural Voices Choir in in London, and either when you're singing harmonies, you can't think of work. So it's an amazing way to just relax. I have been known to do like a, a whole little acoustic set just for my cats as well, just sort of with my... They love it, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. And I, I love hiring people who love karaoke as well. Well done in that case. <laughs> <laughs> how would your friends describe you? And is that the same as how you'd like them to describe you? Well, I think that optimism does come out, actually. I think people would probably describe me as optimistic, positive, kind, hopefully, probably a bit obsessed with work. I I have um, various ex-partners who have told me the same. (laughs) And uh, yeah, a lot of friends know that about me, but uh, it's difficult. I think, you know, when you're obsessed with work, it's it feels it doesn't feel like a chore. It's it's really quite a passion. I'd like to think that they would describe me as occasionally witty, like my father, but uh, I can't be, uh, I, I, I can't push people in that direction. I think you're hilarious. I think you are, yes. And just going back to the singing, uh, people don't know this about you probably, but your house is quite well set up for karaoke. So tell us a little bit about that and then give us, I know it might be difficult, but maybe your top three karaoke songs. <laughs> So, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So it used to be an old drama school and it has a stage still in my house, which I put to very, very good use. And uh, I also have my choir occasionally come and sing there as well. So, yeah, I it's a great way to to, to relax. And I'm yeah, I, I kind of think why doesn't everyone have a stage in their house? Right. <laughs> but uh, my karaoke songs, it's quite niche. Often uh, gay men. So there's Will Young, George Michael, Eurasia. Those would be my sort of like go-to songs. If I'm going to be really showing off, it's uh, Je ne regrette rien by Edith Piaf in French. I do need the words up on the screen. Wow. But yeah, that's my uh, bring the house down one. Does your mum give you notes on your accent? (laughs) (laughs) She's, yeah, because she's, as I said, yeah, French teacher, she's half Swiss. I, I've got a good French accent. I'm not very good, actually, with my French vocabulary. It's gone over the years. And in fact, this is quite revealing. She made me take my French O-level twice because I didn't get a good enough grade and I wasn't very good for her marketing. Wow. <laughs> wow. But you know what? I've got I've got a better result as a... Yeah, so there you go. I can sing Edith PF as a result of that. And we have heard that many times. We have indeed, and it is amazing. It is that wobbly voice you do. I don't know how you do it. (laughs) So, Tamara, I think we've got an amazing picture of you. I mean, we already had one, but hopefully the the audience have really got a flavour of what an incredible person you are. And it really is an honour and a privilege. And I I speak for Wendy and myself to to both work with you and be a friend. What, What would you like your legacy to be? pinging forward for a few years those boys that are you know that you spend a lot of time with Emma and the business and the industry and the LGBT community you know what what's that legacy gonna look like oh that's a big one isn't it I mean is it gonna make me sound very shallow shallow if I say that I want to have a a karaoke yacht at Cannes (laughs) not to me (laughs) no um named after you (laughs) 
Yes. That's <laughs> there every year. Love it. Do you know what? I, I think, you know, I'm so passionate about what I do and, you know, 20 years, it's, it's a big deal. And I'm so grateful to be surrounded by such a talented team and the exec team, the wider team, you know, everyone, we're, we're based all over the world and they're truly exceptional. And I think, you know, that team, I suppose, is my legacy. One of the advantages of creating companies, you get to hire people and you get to hire people and see them grow and see them develop. And, you know, all of the people who've been part of the social element along the way and, you know, some who've gone on, left and gone on and started their own companies or or joined at other amazing places, they are the legacy as well because you got they kind of went through and they were part of it and you know and some of them come back to us as well which is incredible but I suppose that that is something that I it's when you start a company it is like a baby and now it's a 20 year old adult and I just want it to keep going and and um, you know continue to help amazing clients continue to grow continue to be passionate and attract amazing people so yeah I, I guess the company is my legacy. You've been listening to Genuine Humans, brought to you by The Social Element. If you loved what you heard, remember to subscribe or you can find out more at www.thesocialelement.agency.